Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. All right, so I'm going to tell you right off the bat that I had a lot of fun last week with the first installment of Turntable Gospel, and I sus- based on the conversation I had with you, you all seem to have a pretty decent time with it too. So today I'm going to ask you, though, I think I'm going to ask a lot of you to expand your mind a little bit, because I have a hunch that we're going to play a song that really isn't your jam, because it's mine. <laughs> I get, to do, I get to do one of these, okay, with a song that really beats near and dear to my heart, yes? Okay, and, but I encourage you to do so because remember, we are called, and the whole point of this is that just as we are expositors of the Bible and of our faith, as we seek meaning in that, we are also called as our outreach to the world, as we are a voice in the world for what God is doing, we are also called to be expositors of culture. And so my contention is that you don't have to like the song, I hope that you do. But you don't have to like the song to see what God might be doing in it. So I'm asking you really, really nicely. I didn't start with this one, but I'm really excited about this one. Today, the song that we'll be doing is from a band called Collective Soul, and it's their song called Shine. It was released in 1993 on their album, Hints, Allegations, and Things Left Unsaid. And as many people have said, it is one of the hallmarks of 1990s rock. Now you need to understand, this is when I was in middle school getting towards high school, and so you can understand why this would be so very formational and kind of a piece of my own childhood growing up. And it landed, I'm happy to say, at number 42 on MTV's The Top 100 Songs of the 90s. So it's not just me who says it's a half-decent song. Now here's the thing about Collective Soul that you need to know. All right, in this song today, there's going to be references to heaven. It will sound very spiritual to you. I did not, I'm not going all the way down with some of the songs that mean something to me, but maybe are a little, little more difficult to kind of get to the guts of. There is a mention of heaven and all that sort of thing. And to this end, Collective Soul was often accused in the 90s, as there was, there started to be this overlap between sort of pop music and Christian music, as contemporary Christian music really started to find its legs and become popular, Collective Soul was often accused of being a Christian band. We'll discover later that one of the members there, one of the members of the band, their dad, was a pastor, but they're like, but your song says heaven, that must make you a Christian. And he looked back at him and said, you know, Led Zeppelin sings about heaven too, and nobody accused them of being a Christian band. And so while it will sound like a Christian song to you, and with good reason, as we'll discover later, it's not necessarily in that vein. It is about speaking to the time in which it was written. And I will remind you, 1993, 1994 is what we're looking at. So I invite you to sit back and enjoy one of my most formational songs of my life, Collective Souls Shine. And as Josh pulls it up real quick, just a reminder to the online audience that uh, Rob has already posted the link there. Hopefully you got it pulled up. We'll try to wait another minute or two to allow you to finish um, so that we can all um, participate in the sermon together. But but just be be aware, we're going to have to shut the camera down and the audio will be turned all the way down. So you watch it where you are while we watch it where we are. But today, of course, we're talking about 90s music. And when we talk about 90s music, what we're talking about is... Generation X, 
often described as the latchkey generation, the MTV generation. And in the 90s, they finally and fully came into cultural relevance. The music that we get out of the 90s is their first foray into here's what we have to offer the world, here's how we see the world. But that was complicated because they grew up on the heels of Vietnam and they were thrust into a significantly more global world in a world that was changing very, very rapidly. And there was, shall we say, a lot of angst that came with that. That angst showed up in a lot of different kinds of music. But I want to talk this morning a little bit about this special kind of angst that showed up in Seattle's grunge scene in the 90s. One writer writes, Seattle had been deeply affected by the economic recession of the early 90s when unemployment in that city was at a high. Grunge, with its dour visuals and indifferent lyrics, seemed to encapsulate the gray and depressed mood of the region at that time. Grunge, in so many ways, defined an era. And if you talk about 90s music and you never get around to talking about the grunge scene in Seattle, you have not thoroughly talked about the music of the 90s. Even the greatest Christian band of the 90s and the single greatest album that came out of the 90s for my money, which is called Jesus Freak by DC Talk, had moments where it felt like nothing more than a Nirvana cover. So grunge was all over the place. You put, you put Jesus Freak on and you're like, is this a Nirvana album or a Christian album? The answer is yes. Now, all that angst, all that struggle with the world and our place in it sort of came to a head, and one of the biggest days I remember of my life was, when, was the suicide of Kurt Cobain, the, leader, the lead singer of Nirvana in 1994. As one writer said, grunge was unprepared for its own success. It was used to not being paid attention to, and so it was just in the backwater, thought it would never grow, and then when it did, it struggled to wrap its arms around its own success. On the day Kurt Cobain died, I couldn't have named one Nirvana song at the time. I wasn't allowed to listen to that kind of stuff at that particular time. But I knew that something huge had happened. I remember all the kids at school talking about it, that something very significant had changed in our culture. And after that, what we saw was that grunge started to kind of wind its way down. All of that angst that was built up in that music couldn't last forever, and it sort of had its time. Ultimately, grunge kind of collapsed under its own weight, and it failed to deal with the pain that it was talking about. And I remember that gr I felt like grunge was finally and fully over at the suicide of Chris Cornell in 2017, who was the frontman for another one of Seattle's great grunge bands, Soundgarden. My belief, because it's my music, this is my belief, is that grunge was the spiritual inheritor of the angst and the pain of music just like Johnny Cash. He did, they didn't inherit his sound, but they inherited his spirit. But the reason Seattle grunge went the way it did is because that, that angst grew and intensified because in so many ways the pain it talked about was not heard. This kind of struggle in music is, of course, deeply, deeply spiritual. We talked about that with Cash last week. But, it, but that kind of angst in that music does not contain the sufficient spirituality to endure. It can speak truth into the world, but it can't lead us to a place where we handle that and deal with it in positive ways. That's the tragedy of the grunge music. It's brilliant music, but it couldn't hold up under its own spiritual weight. 
And so in the wake of grunge, there was what is called a post-grunge era that tried to take all that angst and do something with it. Bands like Collective Soul, Foo Fighters, the band Live, who's actually from York, Pennsylvania, hooray for us. Bush, Creed, Alanis Morissette, and yes, even the off-maligned Nickelback embody this kind of music. Critics had little time for post-grunge. They said it, that it was derivative. They said it wanted all the street cred of grunge without dealing with all the pain. It said it was more radio-ready, which was a criticism to the purists who said that this kind of music had sold out. But what if post-grunge was about finding a way to deal with the pain without it ultimately destroying us? Post-grunge quit relying on these wild ethereal metaphors and was more direct and blunt in its language. It often talked about I and you rather than these wild concepts. It dealt with reality as it showed up in my life and in my moment. It was much more plain. Maybe it's not the most unique or creative work, but perhaps it was spiritually necessary at the time. Another writer put it this way, he said, grunge's frontmen posed with their addictions. Post-grunge songwriters sought redemption for them. And in this, we can hear a spiritual progression. We have to find a way to move beyond so much of what weighs us down. If grunge called us to our pain, post-grunge was a way to take the pain and begin the process of seeking healing. What's curious for me is that the same criticisms of post-grunge are leveled at Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is often derided as a derivative song. Psalm. It says that it, it stole most of its material from other biblical sources, including some other psalms. People say it's really not all that creative of a work. One commentator who I read wrote, Psalm 86 is a prayer for help in the first person singular style. We said this about post-grunge. It's very specific, I and you says the composer appears to have used not just the material for psalmic com composition, but other psalms as well. This reuse of material in an anthological style has been judged imitative and inferior. The commentator continues, though. But that is to mistake the genius of liturgical writing, whose principal characteristic should not be originality. It says there's value when we claim the things of the past, repackage them, and move them forward. And this commentator said, one only has to remember the Lord's Prayer to be reminded what power and possibilities lie in a liturgical text composed of traditional and formulaic material. Psalm 86 is in the Bible what collective soul was in the 90s. It is liturgy. It is guardrails trying to move us from the pain of our real life to the healing of God. In this way, maybe post-grunge is, wait for it, liturgy. Because good liturgy isn't about soaring words or religious entertainment. If you come for religious entertainment in the liturgy, I'm sorry I'm going to disappoint you most of the time. Sometimes it gets there. But what good liturgy does is it takes seriously our human emotions and experiences and meets us there. It says that what you are going through right now is within the purview of God. But it doesn't just say, wow, all that pain that you're feeling, that's great, and just kind of leave you with it. No, what good liturgy does is that it starts to put some guardrails on them and gives us companions 
and behaviors to, to process all that goes on with us. Liturgy says in our lives that there is a way forward, that there can be a different outcome other than destruction. There can be a way of speaking emotions and telling our truth into a world, but that it can be heard and dealt with and healed. Post-grunge was a musical liturgy for a generation who needed to grow. And so it's interesting that Shine was released in 1993, one year before Cobain's death. You can hear the deep grunge influence, yes, the distorted guitars, the gravelly voices, the simplicity of the lyrics, which is what resonates with me. You can imagine 16-year-old Sam going down the road in his beat-up truck with that in the CD player, just rocking out. But for me, it was one of the first songs that realized that we couldn't live in the pain of grunge. We had to go somewhere else. As we said, the rhythm guitarist for Collective Soul, Dean Rowland, has called this song's chorus basically a prayer and noted that the uplifting single was, was released during an odd time amidst the heavy grunge scene. Maybe Roland was onto something. Post-grunge had to be derivative to call us back to health. And in this way, it works for us as a primer on contemplative prayer, getting our mouths, bodies, and minds moving in a familiar and predictable ways, and then ultimately letting the words fade away to leave us face-to-face -face with God. Both the song and the psalm, easy for me to say, the song and the psalm have three movements which illustrate the well-intended movement of contemplative prayer, of liturgy. The song begins, give me a word, give me a sign. The psalm begins, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. It cries out, it says, I got an issue, I got a problem, but it cries out in some kind of hope. It trusts that there actually is somebody who is listening, which is where all good prayer starts, trusting that God is listening. I think it's instructive that both these things begin with a request. Because at times, we are so conditioned, sometimes by church, that even in the liturgy as we've constructed it today, when do we finally get to our needs? It's almost all the way at the end of the service, right? When we get to the prayer requests. But here it puts it right up at the front. Here's what we're feeling. Here's what we're dealing with. The needs are up front and immediate. Yes, in both cases they aren't specific, but both the psalm and the psalm give us space to kind of find ourselves and our own needs there. And the message is, friends, that our truest selves have a place in the sight of God. Indeed, coming to God as our truest selves is the only place to start. So we get verse 1, and then there's this guitar riff. One might imagine that God, when we say God speaks to us, maybe God speaks more like music speaks to us than words speak to us. That there's something that moves us, and we can't name it, but boy, you know exactly what it is that God is saying. And I'm seeing the heads going up and down. I know some of you know what I'm talking about. And there's a single word response in collective soul. Yeah. He says it three times. Yeah. God's affirmative response to our needs. And it leads us into this chorus of request. Heaven, let your light shine down. It believes in a light because it believes in the one who heard these prayers in the first place. When we pay attention to our lives in the light of God, there is hope. There is not one so far away that our needs cannot be heard and redeemed. No, prayer teaches us that as we share what's up, God hears us. And sometimes that, that response is just, yeah, I've heard you. 
Stanza two, in both the psalm and the song, takes us to a deeper place. So often the problem with modern American prayer is that it assumes that requests are all there is. But contemplative prayer says, we're not in a rush here. Don't just spill your guts and run out the door. No, no, no. Sit a spell. Take your time. Start with your prayers, but don't let your life be the last word on the subject. Go deeper. And this is where Psalm 86 transfers a little bit. And it comes back to some very deep truths. There is none like you among the gods, he prays. You are great and do wondrous things. You see, the psalmist calls himself back to the deepest convictions of his own heart. Collective soul says, love is in the water, love is in the air. Even the cry, will love be there, isn't this grungy desperation. It's sort of like asking, will love be there? And the answer in the background is, yeah, love will be there. It reconnects with the deepest held beliefs of our soul and puts them alongside our truest needs. And then most notably, it makes another request of God, yes. But this one isn't about circumstances. It's not about, Lord, my, I'm poor and I'm in trouble. No, it makes another request of God. But this time, it's not about my pain. The psalmist writes, the song says, teach me how to speak and teach me how to share. Teach me where to go. Will love be there? And in almost the exact same language, Psalm 86, 86 says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. From our pain to God's presence and then saying, not just God change my circumstances, but God change me. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. And a return to those grungy guitar riffs and, the, and God's voice again saying, yeah, woe, let your he heaven, let your light shine down. And then the final stanza. And what's interesting is the final stanza in Psalm 86 and in the song is nearly identical to the beginning of the song. It comes back to the pain. It says, Lord, there are ruffians who are here to take my life. I got a real issue here. It returns to the pain, but returns to it for me in a triumphal way. It's now emboldened by hope. It is the prayer now of one who feels their pain, but has spent time in the presence of God. Collective soul sings, lay me on the ground and fly me in the sky. Show me where to look. Tell me what will I find. And what I hear is, regardless of what you do, O oh God, whatever the road is ahead of me, even if it's going through my pain, I am confident that I will find your presence. If you stick me in the air, I'll find you there. If you lay me on the ground, I'll find you there as well. In fact, now the, the, the psalmist, the singer, is looking for God's presence. Their senses are alerted to the ways in which God is working in the world. Where at the beginning, all they could see was themselves. Now what they see is God's presence. The prayer of desperation has turned to a prayer of wonder. But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. God transforms the prayer into someone who trusts God with everything, even if it means never solving the thing that is right in front of them. The person is changed. And that is what good liturgy does. And then we get the end of the song. I'm going to let it shine. 
assurance as the song ends. But it ends with this really powerful guitar rift. God's voice, so to speak, gets the last word, but it's in a different tone. It connects back to the emotions, but now has transformed them. What the prayer came in as, Lord, I'm burdened and weighed down. Now it's energized. It's a major key. It's enthusiasm. It says, I can't wait to see what God is doing. And that is what God has for you and for me. God doesn't leave us in our pain. He meets us there, and he's a good companion as he takes us to a place where we can praise God regardless of where we find ourselves. And so to put a bow on this, let us not forget that Jesus himself was shaped by this kind of prayer. He would have been shaped by Psalm 86. He would have known the motions of this psalm. And it's funny that he doesn't just pray those words, but he embodies those words. And one of the great stories, one of my favorite stories out of the New Testament this story from Emmaus, and of course you may remember it well. If not, I encourage you to read the entirety of Luke chapter 24. There's a couple of disciples who are leaving Jerusalem. They're traumatized and fearful. This is where the story starts. This is where our prayers start. And Jesus comes up to them, but they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, what's going on, guys? Remember, this is right after the crucifixion and resurrection, but they don't know he's resurrected. They might have heard it, but they're like, yeah, we're not sticking around to make sure that's true because their lives are in danger. And Jesus strolls up and he goes, what's, what's going on, guys? And they look at him incredulous and say, do you not know? There's deep anger in their voice, angst. Do you not know? Have you not been paying attention? Jesus hears them out. They say, he was a prophet. That word should be important to us. He was a prophet, but they killed him. But Jesus hears them out but then meets them there and says, well, let me show you from, the Mos from Moses and the prophets. He's talking about the scriptures. Let me show you from these guys how you might see this a little differently. Jesus meets them in their pain and drives them back to their deepest held realities. So they do this all day, and then finally they arrive at this house, and it's late at night, and they're like, you know what? Jesus is like, I'm just going to keep on going. I'll see you, fellas. And they're like, yeah, you're not doing that. You're coming and hanging out with us for the night. And Jesus is like, okay, that's great. And so they sit down to a meal. And they come to the house, and when they had shared that meal, it says, when Jesus broke the bread, they recognized Jesus for the first time. And our reading today, they said to one another, after Jesus had vanished from their sight, they said, did not our hearts burn? Did not our hearts burn as he unpacked for us the scriptures and as he broke the bread with us? Jesus walks us through a prayer. From our pain to our deepest held convictions to a new way of seeing the world. That is what good liturgy does. And that is a gift to a world that is in pain. That is a gift to our neighbor who is in pain. It's a gift to even as I look at you with masks on and we're reminded again of like, oh my gosh, we're still in this season. It is a gift to the world to say, Lord, here's what we're struggling with, but there is something deeper and because of that, we can rejoice. That is the path of prayer. That is the path of faith that has been laid out for us. And we're grateful that in an era of music that is often derided and sort of pushed down, that it can remind us again that even in derivative work, even in work that pulls from other sources, we are given guardrails so that our pain can be turned into the celebration of rejoicing. Amen.